Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Location analytics and mapping play a unique role in helping reform inequitable policies and practices in disadvantaged communities. Sophia Garcia, equity and civic nonprofits industry lead at Esri, says data and mapping technology empower communities to make better decisions. This area of our community has less investment. This area of our community has more investment. So with our budget, um, with our resources, we should invest more in the area that needs it. That's a statement that I think a lot of people would agree with. Esri's David Gadsden talks to Sophia Garcia about how data and mapping help increase equity in communities. Hello, Sophia, and welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. So you're the industry solutions specialist for equity and civic nonprofits at Esri. How did you come to pursue geographic information systems or GIS and start applying it to social equity? My dad, Jesus Garcia, has been a GIS professional for now, I think, over 40 years. And so I never made the connection or really was interested in this field until I went to college. So in that, I was really interested in food, sustainability, food justice, because of where I was born, uh, Bakersfield, California feeds, you know, the world. And so I was interested in, you know, the intersection of food insecurity, environmental justice. So I took an introduction to sustainability class, and we were tasked with a project on how do we kind of look at food, food inequity. We were told by the professors, come up with a problem, come up with a solution, and I just had this desire to go talk to people. So I told my group, I'm like, let's create a survey, let's door knock, let's talk to people about whether they go to this grocery store. And there was a grocery store that was less than a quarter mile away. It was, um, in California terms, maybe like the equivalent of a Trader Joe's. So, you know, a nice grocery store, a little bit expensive. Um, but definitely within walkable distance. So I created a survey, knocked on 50 doors, talked to 17 people. But three of those stories really stood out. One was the only gentleman who um, biked or walked to the grocery store. It was a younger gentleman. The second one was an elderly gentleman who relied on his family to bring him food because he couldn't drive anymore. But the third one was a woman on WIC. She's a black woman with two young kids. She invited me into her home. We had never met before. I told her I was a student during this survey. And she told me that she would have loved to be able to walk to that grocery store and buy food because she didn't have a car. But it was too expensive. The store was too expensive and it didn't have the groceries that she needed that um, she could use her, her WIC dollars or that like culturally was the food that she wanted. And I walked away with this huge aha moment of like, oh my gosh, everything is connected. We came in looking at a story on food injustice, but we're talking about transportation. We're talking about a culturally appropriate food. We're talking about um, assistance from the government. We're talking about just family connections. And so I, I with my dad, um, called him and he helped me create a map on desktops. And that map and that woman was my moment that I'm like, there has to be a way where I can have a job in this, where I'm talking about maps, but we're also looking at all these other inequities and social problems. 
And then also when I worked, started working at the Dolores Huerta Foundation, that was at the core, the, the core piece that really made sense to community organizers and to community activists. Like, how do we make these maps accessible? How do we go back into the community? How do we talk to people? And that was really embedded in me. And I learned so much working for the foundation. And that is a social justice organization focused on community organizing. And I think as my first full-time job, um, I learned a lot and I'm really grateful for that foundation of my career. For any of our listeners who aren't familiar, can you uh, help us better understand Dolores Huerta's work over the years and, and, and what their foundation focuses on? Absolutely. So Dolores Huerta is as known for being one of the co-founders of the United Farmworker Union. Um, it was a, a movement that started in the 60s, so parallel with the civil rights movement uh, based in the Central Valley of California, focused on farmworker rights, getting fair contracts um, for farmworkers. And later in life, um, she started a the Dolores Huerta Foundation, which is focused on community organizing as well, but it also focuses on education and furthering policy in the Central Valley of California. So how were you able to bring GIS into Dolores Huerta's initiatives? And I'm curious if it helped to, to make a difference. So at the Dolores Huerta Foundation, again, they had been a foundation for I think a little over 10 years, their focus was on community organizing. It's the first time they had a you know, data person, geography person. And then in 2018, in Kern County, our county supervisors uh, were sued for violating the Federal Voting Rights Act. And so that is a redistricting law at the federal level. And we were able to attend some of the meetings, get involved, understand more about the process. Uh, a month later, we had our high school district, which is the Kern High School District, the largest high school district in the state of California, has over 20 high schools, um, serves uh, close to 40,000 students, mostly students of color. They were getting sued um, by the Federal Voting Rights Act, but they decided that they would go through a public process. And what that means is that they would go through the entire redistricting process as they did in 2011 again. And for those who don't know what redistricting is, it's a, it's a, um, a constitutional mandate that jurisdictions that are, are in wards or districts, they need to redraw their boundary award lines every 10 years after the release of the U.S. Census. So it's a process that we know has been highly politicized over the years, but at its core, it's about creating new district boundaries that represent your community. And because I was at the Dolores Huerta Foundation, a community organization, we got involved in the process from the beginning and used it as a campaign to learn more about this really important process. It seems as an early career professional, that would have um, potentially gotten you into some contentious situations with opposing views and you may be challenging moments. Um, how did you navigate that? How did, and, and was there a role in the in the maps, helping clarify those conversations or lessen some of the tension? Absolutely, absolutely. So as I said, it is a highly political process, politicized process, but um, I believe that as GIS professionals, we do have a role to play in redistricting and just our work, um, all of our work is about sharing the data, making the data accessible, making the data easy to understand, 
making ourselves accessible to the public and not assuming that um, people of different occupations, different documented status can't understand um, the process. And so what, what we did and what I outlined at the Dolores Huerta Foundation was to ensure that I would only be presenting the data, I'd be presenting the facts, I'd be presenting our community comments, I'd be outlining um, state law, federal law, and then I would leave any personal comments to the community. And, and so I gave interviews um, about that process. Uh, we, I gave a lot of public comment about the process and I stuck to the facts, stuck to the data. And we also pr uh, would print out maps during public meetings um, to show the different draft iterations, to show the population and to better just like help visualize and explain what's happening. Because redistricting is complicated. It's a process that only happens once a decade. It's a process that very few people understand. There's not a lot of consultants in this space. Um, and if you're not you know, a, a political leader or someone who's voting on the map, you may not have even heard about the process. And so we really took time to explain everything, what's happening, and then also to explain a concept called communities of interest. It's a redistricting term, um, but I'm sure everyone is familiar with their community. So it's about mapping what your community is um, and how that relates to the redrawing of boundaries. These maps that you were developing uh, to advise on, on the redistricting process, were there moments when you were sharing those maps with the community or a community member where they seemed to really get a benefit from that visualization of what was going on? We uh, mapped out the existing districts and then we mapped out where the incumbents live. So I said, it's, this is the largest high school district in the state of California. It's a board of five people. Three of the five board members used to live within three miles of one another. So that's a 5K distance. Their kids went to the same schools, same high schools. They share the same parks, community pools. And um, in, the di in the largest district, high school district in the state of California, we would show that just by showing where the incumbents live, doing a, a three-mile buffer around. And no matter who we showed that to, people were like, what? That doesn't make sense. Why, why is that happening? It didn't matter who they were from, whether they were supporters of the Dolores Huerta Foundation, where they were reporters, community members, even the board. We would present this to the board and say, how does this make sense? How do all three of you control the voting power of the largest high school district in the state of California. You have uh, communities that are farm worker communities that don't have sidewalks, that don't have community pools, that are, are trying to get more resources for their students. And three of the five live in a multi-million dollar community, in a planned community. We never said that that community didn't deserve representation, because they do. They definitely deserved um, a board member but was it right, was it fair that this one community controlled the entire voting block um, of, the, of this high school district? And that was a question that um, was really powerful and came up because of that map. And that map is, is still shared today. We, we love it. We say this is a great example of what not to do and let's fix it. In these examples, it sounds like the maps and the geography, they really advanced the community's engagement and, and maybe even success and, and outcomes of, of this process. Do you have any more observations on how to make these tools accessible, how to make maps accessible? What are the key approaches to 
putting this, this powerful technology or approach into the hands of more people. I think it's about partnership, collaboration, and transparency. So partnership with your local government, with realizing that you have wonderful community organizations, nonprofit, business groups, who, when they attend meetings, they have such passion and commitment to their community. I see that as them being a part of the process. So you want to partner and collaborate on the work that you're doing within your organization. But the big piece is transparency. So you want to show the data. You want to make it accessible. Um, you know, we have, there's the federal data sets from the census, the ACS, uh, you know, counties and cities also have specific data sets that they maintain. And so it's not gatekeeping that data and having it be on PDFs and only with your GIS department. It's empowering your GIS department, letting your GIS department, you know, use Hub, um, put put the data online, you make a web map, um, add data, allowing them to talk to the community and saying, does this make sense to you? You know, should it be in Spanish? Should it be in another language? You have people maintaining data sets. You have people maintaining, you know, streetlights and sewers and roads and and sidewalks. Uh, you know, our investments, letting them then make that data public. How do you feel that geography and GIS can help find common ground when things get complicated? I think maps are a wonderful medium to talk about. One, they're not a person. So that's really helpful when you're talking about difficult conversations is you're not pointing to a person, you're pointing to a piece of paper or a data set. And, and those data sets are authoritative. You know, we have the census, um, the census data, the ACS data that's gathered, and those show us a lot of things. So they show us race. We have other demographic information. We can see income, um, household income. We can, and then we can take that data and then create more specific maps. There's maps on food insecurity, there's maps on park access, or there's also other uh, data layers that dive deeper into showing disadvantaged communities. And why it's so helpful to have a specific map or data set when you're talking about these is that you can all kind of hone in on a specific area and just say um, factually, this area of our community has less investment. This area of our community has more investment. So with our budget, um, with our resources, we should invest more in the area that needs it. That's a statement that I think a lot of people would agree with. And especially if you show all those datas um, and what you know communities don't have on a map. And we see that happening across the country. Um, there's a couple of data layers, new data layers um, that federally just came out within the past year. Uh, Justice 40 data layers is a transportation data set um, that shows disadvantaged communities. You have the new environmental justice index, um, which shows another range of factors as it occurs to the environment. Um, and then here at Esri, we have, if you go to our wonderful public policy maps uh, page, that also shows additional data sets. But the commonality is that um, when we're having difficult conversations, it is helpful to have some factual information, but then to also understand that the community will have information to supplement this. So also not saying, okay, we have this data from the county or the federal government, which is great. It's a wonderful first start. But we also have to understand that we should go back and we should listen to what people are telling us. Um, 
I'm working on a blog right now about the California Air Resource Board and embedded into their workflow is that they um, have a, a portal where they encourage community feedback, where they say, our data won't capture all every single piece of air quality data. If there's an accident that happens or something goes off, and so that like understanding and building that also into your conversation is an important piece. Um, yeah, we are in a, a space where people are scared, I think, to talk about inequality, talk about equity, talk about race. And so I think GIS is a really wonderful medium to have that conversation and to move forward in a way that's better for our community. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a wonderful education. Appreciate your work. Thank you for having me. It was really fun diving into Equity and GIS with you. Thank you for listening to the Esri in the Science of War podcast. And thanks to Sophia Garcia for explaining how data and technology are bringing transparency and precision to social justice work. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.